Interesting. Okay. Uh, there was a, a court case that took place in the Sahedrin, which is the Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court uh, in Jerusalem. And in this court case, there was this rabbi who was one of the most popular rabbis of his time, one of the most actual famous rabbis, uh, who, who spoke up in defense of one of the parties. And the party that he was defending was uh, led by this man named Peter. We talked about Peter last week. Peter, the disciple, Peter, the fisherman, Peter, the friend of Jesus. And what had been happening is not long after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter, who had been transformed by his encounter with Jesus after the resurrection, had started to tell other people that this Jesus figure was alive, that he rose from the dead. Everyone in Jerusalem would have known this huge event took place where the Romans crucified him. And Peter now is saying, Jesus died, but he rose from the dead, and, and he's alive. And as he had proclaimed this message that his death had conquered sin and conquered death, and he had rose from the dead, and there's this invitation to join in as his followers, we find that Peter starts to lead this band of people. It starts off with maybe about 120. We know that it grows to about 500. They start to gain popularity. And much like with Jesus, the religious system of the time started to oppress Peter. And they said, you can't be doing this. You can't be saying this. He was growing in popularity. People were starting to follow him. People were starting to listen to Peter's message. And what happens is they arrest Peter, much like they did to Jesus. And it seems like the same path that Jesus was on, now Peter's on. And then this court case happens in the Sanhedrin. And as they're trying to figure out what to do with Peter and this group of followers of Jesus, this rabbi named Gamaliel speaks up. And he has these words that are pretty fascinating. They're found in Acts chapter 5. As he's talking about Peter and this movement of followers of Jesus, he basically says, we've seen this before. Some guy comes and he says that he's the Messiah. He's going to free us from the Romans. He's going to conquer the world, that kind of thing. We've seen it before. There was this guy named Thaddeus that did it a while back. He got 400 people to follow him. He went out to the desert. Romans killed him. His people scattered. Then there was another guy named Judas that did it, just like Jesus. He claims that he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to deliver him from the Romans. gathers this group of people. And then what we know, the Romans come in, they kill him. And all of his followers just disperse. Nothing happens. So Gamaliel says this. Gamaliel says this of Peter. If what Peter's doing, talking about this Jesus figure who claimed to be the Messiah, if it's of a human agenda, and we know it's like Thaddeus and Judas, if Peter's like that, this thing's going to fail. We don't need to worry about it. It's just not going to make it. We've seen this happen before. They get all excited. They're going to, you know, rebel against the Romans. And, 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 then, and then it just kind of fizzles out when the leader dies. So if it's the same thing, we don't need to worry about it. It's just going to fizzle out. But if what Peter is doing, if the activity of Peter is actually divine activity, if God's behind it, and if God is setting this in place and he's empowering Peter, then no matter what we do, is it going to be able to stop this thing? So Gamaliel says, let's, let's just step back a little bit and see what happens. Let's see how this plays out. It's either going to fizzle out like the other ones have, or it doesn't matter what we do because this is going to be unstoppable. And what we find is this story of the gospel that Peter's proclaiming, this group of people that come together turn out to be unstoppable. They turn out to be transformative to the entire world. And this group of people that goes from 120 to 500 explodes throughout the empire. Unbelievable activity, unstoppable activity that God is behind. And we'll talk about the growth of what happened with these followers of Jesus and how much they went out. 
But this whole story of this group of people post-resurrection who proclaimed the resurrection and followed Jesus, the whole story is found in this book called Acts. And as a new church, I thought it would be great at this point, at this season of our life, if we did kind of a, a study on this book of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. And it basically reads like a novel. It tells the story of the early church and their activity that was unstoppable in the world. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at this book of Acts and see the activity of what the church does and how it grows and how this message spreads. So today, we start in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. A lot is told to us just in this verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 reads this in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In this first verse, we find that the person that's writing this book of Acts has actually written a previous book, and he's writing to this person we think named Theophilus. And so what we find just from this first verse is that someone has written something before, and he's written to this person before, and he's written about what Jesus began to do. So when we look at the context of this book of Acts, what we find is if you dig into it, what you find is that the author of this is a man named Luke. Luke, the disciple of Jesus. Luke, who wrote the account of the life of Jesus called the book of Luke. He opens that book with the same phrase to Theophilus. So the author of Acts is a man named Luke. Luke is also a doctor. He's very detailed. He's very educated. And he's telling this story of the activity of Jesus. What we find is that this is the second book that he's written because he's written a gospel. He's given an account of who Jesus is, the gospel of Jesus. And this is his follow-up. And he writes to Theophilus. Theophilus, we think, might be a person. Theophilus means lover of God. So it's one of those names that could mean one person, but it could also mean a group of people. Maybe he's not just writing to a specific person. Maybe he's writing to all of these other people that love God and are beloved by God. So Luke is one of those books that maybe it's to one person or maybe it's to a group of people, but it's people who are in this relationship with God. So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, and then he follows up with this story called Acts. The purpose is to present a history of this movement, this Jesus movement. He's telling the story of this is how it all happened. This is how it all went down. There's a detailed historical account. It also gives a defense of this group of people. And what we find is that one of the central figures in this movement, this Jesus movement, is named Paul. Paul, at the end of this book, is in Rome, and he's under house arrest. Some people said that Luke is writing this to give a defense, to prepare a defense, to defend this guy, Paul, from the Romans who are trying to basically have him killed for starting being a part of this religious group. So some would say he's giving this apologetic, this defense of, hey, we're good people. We're misunderstood, but we're good people. Another purpose was to provide a guide for people like us who are part of this movement of Jesus in this world, to provide a guide of, this is what it looks like when you join one of these communities. It's fun, it's scary, it's unpredictable, And God shows up and does amazing things. And then finally, it depicts the triumph of Christianity in the face of persecution. What we find is that in this story, there's all sorts of persecution and resistance against this Jesus movement. Um, All sorts of riots break out. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, he's British. My father-in-law probably would love him. says this, in the book of Acts, everywhere these Christians went, there was a riot. 
Everywhere I go today, they serve me tea, talking about you know, <laughs> the differences in the worlds we live in. But to de- depict the triumph of Christianity in the face of persecution. And here's a key phrase that I think it, it, for today. When Luke is writing, he says, he gave an account of all that Jesus began to do. Not what Jesus has done, but all that Jesus began to do in his first account. The gospel of Luke was this story of of who Jesus is, of, of how he lived, and of what he does on this earth. But Luke is saying that the work that Jesus did was just what he was beginning to do in this story. Jesus is at work in this world. He's done something, but he also continues to do something here and now. And so these people that believed in the resurrected Christ would gather in groups like this, and they would basically say, this Jesus who lives lives in each one of us. And we are now the body of Christ. And the work of Jesus is now happening through each one of us. And it's done that for 2,000 years. The work that Jesus began to do with his life and ministry on earth now is spread out through this group of people called the body of Christ. It's the work that he began to do that keeps on going to this day. And what we find in this story is that this group of people that started off as about 120 and grew to about 500, by the time uh, 40 AD happens, comes around, there's probably 1,000 of them. Over the next 350 years, this group of people who are part of this Jesus movement grows to about 30 million people by 350 AD. The Roman Empire is thought to have about 60 million people at this time. So like half of the Roman Empire becomes a part of this Jesus movement where they say, we believe there's a different kingdom on hand, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of forgiveness, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of kindness and compassion and generosity. And it's different than the world. It's different than the kingdom of Rome. And this is what this kingdom looks like. And what we find is that it's infectious and it spreads throughout the empire. Unbelievable growth, this this movement of people who have this relationship with Christ go from 150 people to 33 million in the course of 350 years. And what's interesting is this message that spreads, it spreads in the midst of conditions of extreme uncertainty. The world that they live in is super unpredictable. They have no idea what life has for them. It's it's an unsafe world. There's all sorts of barbarian hordes that come in and are constantly attacking Rome. You never know when the Romans are going to get ticked off at you and, and end up, you know, completely punishing you. There's this Roman secret police that's going through and finding out if you're disturbing the peace, they take you out. There's all these slave rebellions that happen. It's just, it's an uncertain world that they live in. And this church, this group of people grows like crazy. And it grows in the face of opposition. But we find that some of these Roman emperors are are flat out crazy. Nero sets the place on fire. These Roman emperors don't like this new order, this new way of doing life, this kingdom that they talk about where they proclaim that Caesar isn't Lord, but Jesus is. And so there's all sorts of persecution that happens. And this movement of Jesus followers explodes, explodes in the face of this opposition. And then it also happens with limited resources and funding. And we, we know that this movement actually started, for the most part, caught on with women and slaves. That's where it explodes. And we know that the Christianity goes into circles of influence in the wealthy, and they respond to it. But for the most part, this is kind of this grassroots movement that explodes through the empire of people who don't really have anything 
but love and each other and God. And with their limited resources, this thing just takes off. It, growth happened without the modern transit system. So if you want to go anywhere, you can't hop on a train, you can't drive a car, you can't hop on a plane. You sail across the sea, and there's usually like some sort of shipwreck that happens, or you get robbed. Traveling here is extremely difficult, but that doesn't stop them. They grow unbelievably quick in this time period. So Acts covers kind of how this happened. And in Acts chapter 1, there's two questions that I want to look at. Two questions that are asked in Acts chapter 1. As Jesus rises from the dead, he appears before his disciples. Luke starts telling the story, and he says to Theophilus, this is a story I'm telling you all that Jesus began to do. What we find in Acts chapter 1 is Jesus is having this conversation. And Jesus is telling his disciples, basically, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm going to leave you, but I'm not really leaving you. I'm going to be with you. And you're going to take this message of love and redemption out to the entire world. And then there's this question that comes from the disciples in Acts chapter 1. And I want to look at this question. It says this, verse 6. When they met together, they asked Jesus this, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So the question is, Lord, now that you've risen from the dead, you've conquered death, is this the time where you come and restore Israel? We think about this question, the word restore is key. There was this belief from God's people that the restoration of the brokenness of this world was going to happen. That God was going to come and restore everything to be what it was meant to be in the creation story in Eden. There was going to be this shalom, this peace. And the disciples are wondering, Jesus, at this time, are you going to restore all of this that's been broken? And they use this idea of the kingdom of Israel, where this place that, that God has, has put his people on the earth. And it's not necessarily a political or violent kingdom, but it's a kingdom of people who are holy priests. This nation that's set apart of people who say, we are here to be blessed by God and to bless others. And the question from the disciples is, are we going to be restored to that place where you are here and your dwelling is on the earth and everything happens how you want it to happen through your people? And this is Jesus' response. His response is, it's not for you to know the times and dates of when this restoration is going to happen, but you are to be my witnesses in this world. You are to give an account of what's happening, what happened to me and what's happening in this world. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, and my spirit will come, and it will empower you, and you will be my witnesses here in this place in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So they ask Jesus, are you going to restore all of this now? And Jesus' response is he gives his followers a mission. You are going to be the witnesses of what's happening. Jesus gives them a calling. Jesus gives them a task to be a witness of what he has done in this world and what he is doing in this world. And he says, the time isn't for you to know, but here's what you can know. I give you this mission as my followers, as my body, as my church, to spread this message as far as you can. The mission is everything in this book of Acts for these disciples. They've spent time with Jesus. They've been transformed by him. And now they have this calling to go out to let other people know what life with Christ is like. This mission grounds them. This mission is, in many ways, ascending from Jesus to his people. And as his followers today, as those who gather 
in this community to say we're the people of Jesus, we're Jesus' people, that mission is the same for us. That mission is the same for us. The mission, I would say, the mission gives unwavering faith amidst the conditions of extreme uncertainty for these followers of Jesus. If that was one of the things that you would think would suppress growth for them, for them, the mission is what gives them this unwavering faith. We know the world that we live in is broken. We know the world that we live in is crazy. We know that bad things happen, that hardships come. We don't know what the future holds, but we know that God is good, that he's restoring this place, and that he's given us this task to join him. So the Christians, they believe this is the will of God. This mission of joining God in this restoration plan. And in the midst of uncertainty, they're grounded by this mission. It gives them this unwavering faith. When we try to figure out what is God's plan for my life, and what is he doing, and why do things not work out the way I want them to, and what am I supposed to do with my life? I, it's interesting, I run into people who are 20 who ask that question, I run into people who are 55 and they ask that question. It's basically, like, what does God want from me? God wants you to be a part of this mission. He has a mission for you to be a witness, to be a witness. For the followers of Jesus in this time period, what we'd find is they didn't necessarily know kind of like what the strategy was to get this word out. But they knew that they were going to be faithful with what was in front of them. And in the conditions of extreme uncertainty, one of the things that would, would happen what we, we know in the first couple hundred years of, of this church is Rome would get hit by certain plagues and sicknesses. And these aren't kind of like, you know, um, the bird flu that we get here and, and it's more fear than reality. We read stuff on CNN. These are actual plagues that would go into villages and they would just wipe out thousands of people. So what would happen is that you would, if you're in this village and everyone gets sick, you would leave. You would move somewhere else. You would get your family out of there. For the followers of Jesus, though, in this time period when these plagues would come in and start wiping out towns, they knew that Jesus is the kind of person that says, care for those who are sick. So when everyone else is leaving and getting out of town, we're going to stay here. And we're going to comfort those who are hungry. We're going to take care of those who lose their homes. And we're going to heal the sick. And we don't really know what the future holds, but we know that this is what Jesus would do. And in our calling to be witnesses of him, this is what we do as well. So one of the ways that it grows in this time period is that Christians get involved in some of the darkest, broken, deadly areas of the empire where sicknesses would come forth. Uh, there's this quote from, from Dionysius of Alexandria in 260 AD. She says, Most of the Christians in our city showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick attending their every need, helping and comforting them, and with them departed this life serenely happy, because Jared's MacBook saved okay. serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, and cheerfully accepting their pain. So in the conditions of uncertainty, when the world was just crazy, the Christians said, because of our calling, because of our mission, we're not leaving these places where the world is crumbling, we're actually going to get involved in their suffering and be with them. So Christianity grows because the Christians are compassionate and they care and they show up. They have this unwavering faith that God is good and we are his witnesses.
Another thing, on the next slide. Mission that God, is they're given through Jesus. The mission gives courageous strength in the face of opposition. They're given courageous strength. So they're given unwavering faith because of this mission, but it also gives them courageous strength in the face of opposition. What we find is that so many of these guys are martyred again and again for their faith. And in Acts uh, chapter 7, I think it is, there's this man named Stephen who gets martyred because of this faith, and he gets stoned. Where they, Literally, these people pick up rocks and they throw them at him and they crush him. But in the face of that opposition, he has this courageous strength that God has given him a mission, that this life is about something that's bigger than his own. It's about the restoration of this world. And from that mission, he's able to face the opposition, even to the death, because he knows even if they kill us, we will rise from the dead. That's the story that we're a part of. It's this courageous strength that comes. Another thing, the mission gives inspired radical generosity in an economy of scarcity. When in this world, there's so many people who don't have, don't have really any property, resources. The rich kind of, there's this huge gap between the rich and the poor. Many of them are slaves. What we find is that even in the midst of their poverty, they're unbelievably generous. And they make these huge sacrifices so that this message of love can be spread throughout the world because of this mission that Jesus has given them. So there's all sorts of acts in this book where these people come and they literally like sell a field that they own and give it to this group of people and say, use it to distribute it to the needs of the community, to feed the hungry, to give water to the thirsty, to heal those who are sick, to help repair lives that are broken. And there's this unbelievable generosity that happens from this community. The body of Christ are generous people. They make these huge sacrifices to meet the needs in their community because of the mission that they've been given. And then finally, uh, this mission inspired an urgency of risk-taking and travel. Inspired this urgency of risk-taking and travel. It's hard to travel at this time period, but this mission that Jesus gives them to go into all the world creates this sense of urgency. We've got to get this message out. So we're going to be willing to take risks to go to places where this message hasn't gone before. And what we find is that this thing spreads from Jerusalem and it goes up into like modern day Turkey. And then at some point, it goes from modern day Turkey across the Aegean Sea into Europe. And it goes across the sea that's extremely dangerous. Um, This is the sea where the Iliad takes place, the story of the the Odyssey. And the Christians cross the sea like it's nothing. They go into Europe and they take this message. They take the risk to take it all the way to Rome. They're willing to leave the comfort of their home to get out of their comfort zone and go and to take this message because the mission is to go into all the world with this story of Jesus. And it spreads like crazy. So we're going to talk about what does that look like for a church to be a sending church, for a church to multiply its influence in the world. And we'll see how they do it in the book of Acts. And what does that mean for us, a church plant that was started by other churches sending us that will someday be a place that sends more churches, not only into the city, but also into the world. There's this urgency to get the message out because of the mission. So the first question, when are you going to restore this place, this world? Jesus responds, it's not for you to know, but here's a mission for you to do. Go out and to be my witnesses to the world. 
that mission grounds this group of people and it gives them strength and calling and causes them to leave places that are comfortable. There's a second question that is asked in the first chapter of Acts, and I want to end with this. The second question is simply this. As the disciples watch Jesus ascend to heaven, they've been given this mission, they've been given this calling. It says that there's this voice of an angel that comes through, and it says this to the disciples. It says, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Don't you know that this Jesus that came, that walked among you, that started to rescue this world, that died on the cross, that conquered death, and that ascended into heaven is coming back someday? Why do you stand here looking at the sky? Is the question that is for the followers of Jesus. What we find is that this voice is saying, it's time for you to get to work. God's given you this mission to go out and do it. I think what happens oftentimes is, as followers of Jesus, we spend a lot of time looking up into the sky and waiting, wondering what God is doing. The question is, why are you doing this? God has given us a mission already to be witnesses in this world. So as we end today, when we think about uh, the mission that we have to be witnesses in this world, it plays out in all sorts of different ways for each one of us. And I want to ask this question. What does God's mission for your life look like? You are to be a witness for him at home, your surrounding area, to the ends of the earth. In your context, what does God's mission for your life look like? What is he calling you to do? Who is he calling you to be? Wherever you're at in your journey, whether you're younger, whether you're older, whether you're successful, whether you've not experienced success yet, what is your mission? What is God calling you to do? Who is he calling you to be? And then this question, how can you live that out in the context of something like this, church plant? How can you live out that mission? Use your gifting, use your calling um, in the context of Desert City. How can you live that out at your own house, in your home, with your family, with those who are close to you? And how can you live out that mission at your workspace, your occupation, your vocation? What is this mission that God has given you? Then how does that play out? Uh, Matt's going to come up and, uh, and close us with a song. And the way that we, we close each service at, uh, at this church is we take some time to reflect on what uh, the scripture means for us, what God says to us, how he speaks to us. And then when we're ready, we move to communion. We have just open communion here. If you feel comfortable taking it, feel free to do so. Communion represents what God has done in the world, all the work that he began to do and continues to do. The bread represents his body that's broken open on the cross. The blood represent, the juice represents his blood that is poured out. Last week we talked about the cross and the resurrection. And as we remember this, we remember this idea of the elements, the communion, the Eucharist. That this restoration of the world is happening through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The body that's broken open, the blood that's poured out. We remember it because that's what God has done for us. But then we also remember the mission, that we are to be witnesses of what's happened. And so as we take communion, we remember not only what God has done, but now what we are called to do, to be part of this this Eucharist, 
to be the body of Christ broken open and poured out for this community and what that means for this community. So as you take it, remember what God has done for you and then remember what God is calling you to be, a living Eucharist, that you would break yourself open, that you'd pour yourself out so others may have life. And that's going to sing a song. And uh, when you're ready, move to communion. Spend some time reflecting and praying. And then uh, after you take communion, you're free to be dismissed today. If you want to stay and, and spend some time in prayer, if you want to just stay in worship, you feel, can f- feel free to do so. But after you take communion, you can, uh, you can jet. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for this story, the book of Acts. The activity of God that's unstoppable, that's restoring this world. Lord, we pray that you would activate your spirit in us today as your church. That we would join you in being witnesses of this story for all to see, for all to hear, for all to know what you are doing. That this mission would be something that grounds us, that gives us strength, that unites us. That this mission would be our compass, that it would guide us that would give us direction, both individually and corporately, Lord. I pray that you would just speak to us now, that you would stir in our hearts what this mission is for us today. Lord, we give you this time. We thank you for allowing us to join you in this great story of restoration. In your son's name we pray. Amen.